Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Speed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It's a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you this hour as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off. For the last 15 years of my life, everywhere I go, I'm the IT guy. And so it's kind of gotten, it's in the back of my brain. It's almost ingrained into my DNA that if there's a problem with the computer or the network, or, it's just my problem to fix. And so that's kind of the way I approach life. And every time I sit down, I don't even think about it anymore. Something doesn't work. I just go, well, I, I guess I better get around to fixing that. So for the first time in 15 years, I'm working at a place where that's not my job. There's somebody else. Now, truth be told, when they first told me, they said, hey, it's the program director for this station that uh, he's, he, he's the geek among us. So he does the IT. I thought, oh, great. Oh, great. So here we got, well, here we have the guy that, you know, he put his, uh, he put his Linksys router into his grandmother's house. And, and so now he thinks that he's going to manage the IT for an enterprise. This is going to be fantastic. And he's running a ButterFS server. Right. <laughs> thinks he's got it all figured out, right? And uh, and I couldn't have been more wrong because you know what ButterFS is, right? <laughs> and that's, and that was that, that was the first. And I think I think the first thing was I think the first thing that 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 kind of clued me in was I bumped into you and and you had mentioned something about PFSense, and I thought, now what what article have you been reading that you've heard of the name PFSense? What are you trying to name drop there? And you could just kind of you know finagle your way through things and actually not have used it, right? So yeah, that's kind of where we started uh, wait a minute this, yeah we kind of know what we're talking about exactly, here with exactly. each other you know and then we started talking about freeness and and then we started talking about nextcloud and all of a sudden i realized this is not you're not just some you're not just some program director guy that that started playing with it you're you're a geek you're I'm a, a geek. geek i admit it yeah i've i've been a full-blown geek for a long time and uh i get a lot of slack from my friends you know and i think we were kind of talking about this last night that right. you know when i when i bring up anything freeness or or, or linux related to get a very sideways look from my buddies. Right. But I'll be the first person they call when their phone doesn't work or yes. when the computer doesn't work or they got a virus or, you know. See, and there are plenty of people. So Grand Forks, town of 50,000 some odd people, even Fargo and, and the surrounding areas, there's a lot of smart people that really know IT. And so, you know, networks and subnetting and getting office set up and 365 subscriptions and email servers, all of that they have down. Where they lack is they don't have a passion for that technology, and it's not. It's just it's what they. It's a job. It's what they do from eight in the morning till five at night. Then yep. they go home and they, you know, they do whatever. And you go home and you build home theaters and you put in different kind of servers in your house and play with different firewall platforms and stuff like that. And uh, and to find that kind of connection in this town, I didn't think was possible up until a couple of weeks ago. I know. I know exactly how you feel. And I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that kind of feel the same way. But, you know, my decompression, my decompression at night when I've been doing all this IT work mm -hmm. for Windows stuff and I've been doing all this other stuff at my other job, you know, flight instructing and all that is going home 
and wrecking my server and making it work again. <laughs> I mean, literally, that's yeah. what it is. Oh, no, thank God I've got a couple servers, and one is is in production that my wife repl- you know relies upon for work and everything. Right. And that one I don't touch, but I like to break things and then fix them. And, yes. Or or just hey, I've never done this before. Noah's uh, said quite a few things. I'm like, I've never tried that before. Well, we're trying it. Yeah. Right. And now here I am using Bitwarden that I have never <laughs> used before. Self-hosted. I'm slowly self-hosted. I'm slowly working my way into it. I'm, uh, you know. I, I, I kind of had this thing with one passwords. I've been with them for so long that I'm right. like, ah, it's really hard to break away. But I've been slowly hitting that Bitwarden extension a lot more than one password lately. So, yeah, I, I, this is it's hard to it's hard to find people in like you said in this town, right? Let alone in the state of you know North Dakota. There's six hundred thousand people mm-hmm. that kind of share the same aspect. There's a lot of nerds out there or yes. techs out right. there or geeks out there but one will be you know one thing that i don't know anything about and i'm not really interested in so we kind of have this bouncing back and forth of uh just it just happened to be i don't know fate that we actually right. like the exact same stuff which is yeah. really cool so and we jumped the gun just a little bit but matt Melsal's name he is the it he's the it Guy, director, sure. Pl- guy, he's the guy. He's the guy that fixes the computer stuff over at the other at the radio station that I work for. Right. Yep. And so I do some I do some work over there, filling in for some tacos and, and some of that. And and I've started to get into some of the broadcast engineering stuff. And what has impressed me, Matt, quite honestly, is that you're really good at your job. Like, well, thank it's you. Not, it's not just a well. That's just something you kind of picked up in a hobby. And I think the first time we ever had a phone conversation, I think I asked. I said, "Listen, are you?" actually an IT guy or are you just the guy that fell into it because there was nobody smarter in the right. building? Yeah. You know, and I and I, I didn't ask that to be condescending. I just asked that so I know what kind of language should I use. Can I talk about IPs and subnets and stuff like sure. that? Or do I need to say the little thing when you click on the box and the, you know <laughs> uh, and, and it became pretty obvious that you you know you're a real intelligent guy. And so it's been it's been awesome that my first experience with having an IT guy is a really smart IT guy. Mm-hmm. Like that's a really good experience. So I've I've really appreciated that. Oh. But his name his name is Matt and he's joining me on the program today because we thought well there's a couple things we're going to talk about but first of all what we want to talk about is self-hosting and do it yourself because there's a lot of people out there they want to do things themselves they understand that there is an inherent advantage in owning that technology and not relying on some service not paying for some ransom fee every month to be able to host your data you can do that if you're willing to a do the research and b put the time in yep and so, and you have a lot of experience with that. In fact, you've documented this on your YouTube channel where you actually built a home theater. Yes. Uh, and that's been about three years in the making now. I, it was actually, so a little bit of a backstory. My mm-hmm. wife and my daughter and I, we go to Florida every year. And there was three years ago we were in Florida and we were at a restaurant. And funny enough, we went back to the same restaurant here just just two weeks ago when we were there, the same one, where we decided we we're going to finish our basement. Mm-hmm. And so it just started off as literally going out and finishing our basement. That's mm-hmm. always going to be a couple bedrooms, an office, you know, in, in a living room. And it kind of evolved then into, well, I, I won't lie. I kind of had in the back of my mind yeah. that I wanted a theater. <laughs> but and that's the way you get it past the wife approval. Ex- the WAF factor, you yeah. know, the wife approval factor, obviously. So uh, that's how I introduced it. And it just kind of evolved from there. So I was, uh, I was very lucky in that sense. And so you've documented this entire process. A chat room is asking where they can find it. It's 40ish Geek. 40ish Geek, yeah, on YouTube. And I haven't updated, I'll be honest, I haven't updated in like two years, but I am definitely going to be doing it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I just got lazy, plain and simple. Right. And it's not even because, you know, people say, oh, I ran out of time. I didn't run out of time. I just literally got lazy. So. And if this is, if it's too early to talk about this, we can, we can, we can totally bail on this. But, uh, but, uh, but, but the the you you're actually going to enter back into the sphere pretty soon. 
Yes. Yes. Yeah, we can talk about it. I, okay. I think so. So, so, uh, so Matt and I were sitting there, we're talking, and we're at we're at the radio station, and a third friend, uh, uh, Brad Schmidt, who's been on this program once or twice, and I'm sure a couple of you listened to his his show on Monday mornings. Um, he invited he get, gave me a call and said, "Hey, I want to do tech for the holidays. I want to do a segment on the radio on what to buy the geeks among you, the your, the geek friends in your life." And and I said, "Yeah, that'd be great." So I go in, we we start sitting down to do the segment. And as we're talking about this, the studio is essentially this big glass room you can see out everywhere. And I see Matt walking down the hallway. And so I start talking. I said, hey, that guy should come in here. Matt, you know, he's a smart guy. He would probably have something to add to this. And uh, after we got past the 15 seconds away, <laughs> uh, Matt, <laughs> you know, because as he walks past, then he goes back into the IT room. And all of a sudden I see him go, whoop, hey. and then dashes right back in. So we sat down and, and it was going to be a single segment, ended up filling the rest of the hour. And we all three of us looked at each other and went, man, that was really fun. That was a blast. Yeah, was that was, a- I've done radio, honestly, for 21 years. And that by far ranks in the top five funnest things I've ever done in radio. And it that was, was only like... 30 minutes, maybe 30 minutes. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't and we, very and we long. we didn't plan it. Yeah, it like, was just you know, totally off the cuff. So I, I I scrapped the rest of the show prep that I was going to do that, that half hour, and we just had fun talking, and we got done. We looked and said, we need to do that. Like, that needs to be a regular thing. Absolutely. And yes. so we we got together at Matt, in Matt's home theater, actually, and uh, and sat down, had a couple beers, and just started discussing and said, how would we go about creating a podcast for People that either that essentially, how do we create a podcast by geeks for people that want to get into the geek world? Mm-hmm. How do we create a, an environment where where a couple geeks can come together and just have a discussion about cool geeky things? And uh, so that's going to be launching in the next couple weeks, next couple months. And you and I are going to get together, and that we're just we're just going to sit down and chat about geek things. Yep. We might invite Schmidt along uh, and just have a good time. <laughs> So I have to apologize. I just read off to the side here about someone saying he talks fast too. Uh, there's two peas in the pod. When I get really excited about stuff, I talk really, really fast. I do it all I the time. They're used to it. So uh, I just, they're, they're, they're used to it. I, since day one of this program, the, the most consistent piece of feedback I've ever gotten is, listen, I love your excitement. I love your passion. The information is great. Every other podcast I listen to, I listen at 1.5 to 2.5 times. Yours is the only one I have to slow down. <laughs> and so it's, uh, I just consider it to be uh, efficient communication. Yeah. Right? If I can say something in 30 seconds instead of a minute, why would we not do that? I'm trying to pack enough in there. So, but yeah, it was a, we had a great conversation and uh, I think we're uh, on the right track. I think there's some really cool stuff that's going to be coming up here. So, so we'll, we'll let you, we'll let you know more as, as time goes on. And of course, one of the things that you and I talked about is that network effect, that ability to say, listen, there is a ton of overlap between people that call in to ask Linux questions and, and people that want to just hear a general geek show. There's a lot of overlap there. Right. Mm-hmm. And so as, and it doesn't have to be a zero sum game. So as that show continues to build up listenership, um, there, there can be cross promotion going on. And Absolutely. So, so I hope there is, yeah. you know, I, 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 definitely don't want the competition i mean the whole point of what we're doing with with brad too and he's pl- more political yep. is just building kind of this network where you can go to this one little place and say well i want the politics or i want geek or i want linux or we're going to hopefully add quite a bit more to it too right so. so and as that builds up and of course we'll tie destination linux and all of that in, in into the, into that so i think i think it'll be a a really good opportunity for for everybody involved and and so we'll you know as as more information comes back we'll have that available again you two can join the program one 855 that's 855-450-6624. Looks like you have a full mumble room. Hey, guys, how are you? Hello. 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 We are fine. It is a ser- seriously filled up place today. 
Well, thanks for being here. You guys feel free to poke us in the chat room. We'd happy, we'd be more than happy to put you on the on the program. So, Matt, I guess I was going to ask, why do you choose to self-host stuff? Like, you have, I mean, you've got the budget, you've got the ability to pay for Dropbox and something. Yeah. You know, it's not like you live in the poorhouse, but why do you choose to host your data on your own server and go through that trouble as opposed to just paying for something? I think because I can. I think that's really the reason why. It, like I, I, I ran Dropbox up until uh, I started running Nextcloud here about a year ago, give or take. And I, I, it's not a. I'm not into this whole data privacy thing. I don't okay. really care if they go through my files. There's nothing in there that my wife knows that our super documents are encrypted and we hold, you know, have those somewhere else. But it, so it wasn't really for that. It was just because I could. And again, it was more the playing aspect of sure. just going in and man, when you get that thing going and you get the kind of the goosebumps going, yeah. you're like, oh my god, everything's sinking and my phone works and I'm sending pictures from my phone. You know, it's just it just gives and me it a makes real you feel kick. more important, right? Like the server goes down, you're like, listen, my prod one server is down. The data cannot replicate. All of my users are unable to access our infrastructure. This cannot be. We aim for five nines of upside here yep. at Upsol's, you know, yep, data exactly. center. But yeah, it's. I think for me, like I said, it wasn't a privacy thing at all. I, 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 I trust Dropbox with the stuff I had. It was just pictures and videos and whatnot. But sure. uh, I, I just, it was more the geek aspect of it. It was just doing it. And knowing that I can do it. And then, to be honest, I'm waiting for it to break. I kind of <laughs> want it to happen. That's, uh, that's what you hear from people that try Linux for the first time. They say, I just keep waiting for it to break. Yeah. I'm just waiting for it to crash. I keep waiting for it to blue screen. Then it doesn't. And you look back and it's like, what's well, been eight years now? I guess I should probably start maintaining the thing. Right. And you know what's going to happen is I'm going to be over in Europe on my family trip. And that's when everything's going to go south on me. And I'll have to rebuild stuff remotely. But whatever. It's hey, fine. You can handle it. Yeah. 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 855-450-6624. You're at SNOAH. Hello. Brad, Alabama. Hey, you know what? This is, uh, yeah, Brad Muscle. How are you? Hey, pretty good. How are we doing? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, I had a question for you regarding uh, VPN and with all the talk about uh, WireGuard wire lately. Mm-hmm. I've been kind of wanting to uh, play around with it, but I can't really find a good, I guess, use case for it. I was thinking about possibly putting my uh, NextCloud instance behind the VPN, but I'm not really sure. Uh, what kind of benefit that would, uh, you know, allow me to gain uh, possibly using it to get around a uh, port restriction uh, at work or uh, so I'm not really sure. So I didn't know if you could tell me, you know, maybe elaborate on some uh, benefits to putting stuff behind the VPN and uh, also the pros and cons of putting the VPN on the same box as the service. So like having NextCloud and the VPN both being on the same computer versus them being two separate machines. Sure. Matt, what are your thoughts? So I, I, I run a, one of my servers I run is called Unraid. And this is, uh, it's Linux based and it runs Dockers. So my NextCloud and um, my, well, I, my VPN's on a different one. I run a, a different Untangle server for that. But um, my NextCloud runs on Unraid, but I also run Let's Encrypt. And I don't know if you know what that is, mm-hmm. but that's the uh, the reverse proxy. And the reverse proxy, proxy allows me to um, come in over SSL or HTTPS, or HTTPS to the NextCloud server without having to worry about port forwarding through my mm-hmm. untangle and everything. Um, so, you know, up, I'll be honest, up to the point of when I was running the reverse proxy, I'm really, I don't like opening ports. I just, I've always kind of had that yuck in my in my gut when I As run As you should, you're essentially poking holes in your firewall. Exactly. So I was actually running VPN. I was running VPN, but it was a real pain to 
hook up the VPN, let the next cloud sync, you know, and then I'm like, there's got to be a better way than this. Um, so I don't know. In terms of running them on the same service, the only thing is that you have to worry about is the possibility of a failure, a total failure. You know, if you lose one, you lose everything. Um, but, you know, how? what are you running for a server right now? Is he there? Yeah, he is. Uh, I mean, currently I'm running uh, NetCloud on a, uh, not a Raspberry Pi, the Rock 64 board, uh, one of the little uh, pine boards. Okay, one of the RM architecture. On a uh, home server, and it's using the uh, Let's Encrypt. It's, it's running the NetCloud Pi, so I mean, I've got the HTTPS through it and everything. Yeah, so I wouldn't worry too much about, I don't know if you need VPN if you're running it over Let's Encrypt. And do you have the Let's Encrypt all fired up, it's running okay and everything? Uh, yes, sir. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I, I. I mean, unless you're really, really worried about your data, but it's already encrypted at that point. So. Yeah. The. You know. The. Uh, what. Where. Where I find that VPN is helpful. I. I guess I've always found it helpful in the sense that I get access to my network from outside the network. I would. I don't know that I would set up VPN for one particular service. The only. The only exception to that would be if you need one particular service that is not. Uh, is not secure. And I'll give you an example where we use that all the time. There are plenty of pieces of networking equipment that we. I have to administrate that it doesn't support anything other than Telnet because it was made back in 1965, and they're they they don't update it anymore. Yet it's still in production. I have to work with that. And so the way we get around that is it's on its own separated network, and I've got a box that's hooked up that allows me to Telnet into into that particular antiquated device and i use a vpn to access the control box i guess mm -hmm. um in that particular situation a yeah. vpn would be useful but as far as as uh, just for nextcloud no you wouldn't gain anything because like you said like you and matt have both already pointed out let's encrypt is already encrypting your traffic so it's already a private connection all right then can i let me ask you this thing real quick uh so at my work uh i i can't uh, SSH out of the computer, but it seems to be a network thing. So when I, if I uh, hotspot my phone and then connect the computer to my phone, then I can SSH out, you know, so I can administer like a, uh, you know, uh, uh, DigitalOcean droplet or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, would connecting uh, to my home VPN over my works network, would it allow me to get around yes. port block at all or is yes. that more? I'm going to put a caveat on that though. When I was, when we were up in Canada, um, we were at the airport at Winnipeg waiting for a plane and I tried to connect with my VPN back home through port 443 mm -hmm. and it wouldn't take. So, um, I'm sorry, 1194, <clears throat> 1194 was, is that the open SSL port? Open VPN. Yeah. yeah. Open, mm -hmm. or, or open VPN. Yeah. 1194. It wouldn't take that. Um, and I have one set for port 443. That's right. Um, and that one did connect. So it kind of depends on what ports they're blocking. There is a possibility that could be blocking VPN also. So you'd have to find out and just try it, I guess. Yeah. The, the other thing you can do is use non-standard ports. So I would venture to say if you... If you connected with SSH over port, I'm just going to make something up, 5555, that may connect if port 22 doesn't. And one of the things that you can do in like the Microtech routers or PFSense is you can specify multiple incoming ports and a different translation port on the, on the local side. So, for example, you could set up an SSH connection uh, for port 5555. So when it hears a connection on 5555, the router will translate that to port 22 on the inside of your network. Uh, and that would also get around the problem. You wouldn't have the the the, uh, the overhead of of setting up a VPN. Someone brought up a really good point to be careful and make sure that it doesn't go against your works policies. That's a really good idea, actually. So um, I would I would be careful with that. If you think you're you may be trying to go around something, uh, there might be a reason for it. So yeah, I'll definitely double check with them. You know, like so that was mostly 
uh, one case thing where I was interacting with a droplet uh, specifically for work. Uh, but yeah. I appreciate it, guys. All right. Yeah, appreciate the call. 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Make your voice heard. Become part of the program. Also, Ch- uh, Eric, the IT guy in the chat room, says that uh, when you uh, when you shut off port 22, it makes fail-to-ban much quieter. So the idea is that there are people out there that will just port scan the heck out of port 22 and try to see what they can get into. And that may be why your work has decided to drop some of that traffic. Uh, and, that, and so... So just changing the port, it may not be that they have necessarily a policy against it. It may just be that they don't want to have to deal with all of the uh, the unknown traffic that's going to come in on, on that standard port. Again, 855-450-NOAH, that's 855-450-6624. If you want to make your voice heard and become part of the conversation, we invite you to do so. We're chatting with Matt Upsall, talking about self-hosting. So Matt, when did you first hear about Linux, or how did you... Uh, was it just something that you found a project and you just found, oh, that uses that Linux thing? Or was it something that you had an active interest in? I think I started using Ubuntu. Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> I'm going to I'm gonna get a lot of flack for this. But I actually had a MacBook that I bought. Okay. And I dumped it and put Ubuntu on it. And people say, well, why would you do that? Well, because I had a good piece of hardware and I had a good piece of software yeah, for a while. Yeah, sure. I mean, it was, it, but the only problem is it wasn't. It wasn't great because drivers are kind of tough and it, yeah. it didn't didn't jive very good. Um, but I, I used it for probably two years that way. Um, but I think that was probably my first introduction to Ubuntu. Mm-hmm. Um, running it live for a while, um, you know, off just USB, just kind of playing with it and yep. seeing, uh, you know, what can I do? What can I break? What can I fix? And how do you load things? That's kind of one of the big things I think scares people off is repositories and, um, you know, loading software. Cause there's uh, different ways of loading things sometimes that can... Make people a little nervous. But yep. Once you know it, it's it's just like every other software out there. Exactly. So. Yeah, and the, you know the thing is, a lot of times people will come over to the Apple platform because they want a consistent user experience. They want the security and stability that macOS provides over uh, over like a Windows system. And what you find is that Linux will offer a lot of those same advantages. You just have to be willing to put a little bit of the work in because, at least at the moment, you can't just walk into Best Buy and walk out with a Linux computer. Yeah. And so when you have, it, the, but what I found with a lot of people that use the, you know, that are in the, the Mac ecosystem, they, it works fine for them for four or five years. And then all of a sudden they hit this thing where they're like, I want to do more. Yes. And they hit that they hit that walled garden edge, and they go, well, now how do I expand a little bit? And that's where you start to see a lot of people start to install uh, other operating systems on their MacBook because it's a great great piece of hardware. Now, how can I pair it with an even better piece of software? And I think we were kind of talking about this when we were on Brad's show a couple days ago. Um, I, I'm I'm an iPhone guy, and to be totally honest, I would actually go to Android if I could. Mm-hmm. The problem is, is I'm so built into the ecosystem right now, mm-hmm. and it's not only me. That's the other side of it, too. Uh, it's it's that my wife, my daughter, my family, my parents, all of our friends, they're all Apple people. So switching picture or swapping pictures and iMessage and all that stuff, I, I've almost contemplated, almost contemplated going dual phone. I've actually thought really? about that because I really want to go Android. <laughs> you know, it's not as it, it not it might not be as crazy, you know, as as it may seem on on the on the front of it because honestly, there's a lot of reasons to have kind of a work business phone and a personal play phone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right, exactly. I don't need it. I really don't. I don't get enough phone calls for that. But just the ability to have both, I guess, is probably more of the reason why. Again, just. Because I really because I can. So here, this is going to throw another uh, a wrinkle in in your uh, in your decision making process. Here, Google has announced a release date 
for Google Fuchsia. Now, if you're not familiar with what Google Fuchsia is, Google Fuchsia is Google's uh, essentially project, internal operating system project, where they're going to replace Android and Chrome OS instead of running on the Linux kernel, it's going to run on a uh, on a on a kernel that Google has developed. And there has been a lot of backlash to this because companies like Samsung, companies like LG are tied to the hip at Google for the Android operating system and so this changes it. Now, I would argue that for a long time Google ha- or that uh, Samsung rather has been spending a lot of time trying to re-implement a lot of Google's infrastructure outside of Android. They've created a content, their own contact app and their own cloud syncing and backup app and, and those kinds of things. And so I, I see this as a, a real detriment to Android specifically, not so much a detriment to Linux, because I think when you start looking at Samsung's decks and their ability to run a desktop version of Linux on Samsung, and that's supported from the company, comes out of the box, I don't see Samsung divorcing the Linux kernel anytime soon. But I do see the possibility of Google doing this. So Matt, where it provides a, 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 a crank in the neck for you is now you have projects like UbiPorts, which is an ability to run essentially Ubuntu on your Android-based phone. So you can mm-hmm. install your own operating system and things like Lineage and, and all of those things where you have a, essentially a freeze version of Android. So it makes the decision a little bit more confusing because now you essentially have three options. Your choices are iOS, Android proper, or one of the side-loaded operating systems that you could put on your phone. Is that something that you'd ever consider? Oh, I'd, I'd consider anything. Again, I'm really? up for anything. I, I really am. And uh, to the point where... I've really wrote down a pros and cons list of actually ditching Apple altogether. And I just right now, it's just not tied into the family structure of of the way we do things right now. It's just a lot easier for me to stay where I'm at and play with things outside of it. And with my daughter only being 11, my wife, you know, does not do technology, period. And to move her to Android would be... An absolute disaster, right? I mean, in well, so and then you ways. become the support guy, right? Exactly. Every time All she's over got again. Uh, every yeah, every time she's got a question, she's coming to you. And the other thing is, I'm guessing that the vast majority of her friends exist on that Apple e- ecosystem. Yep. So she's got a support network built in, and she's got their infrastructure that they're utilizing at school and and, and yeah. social. And again, it's 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 that is really the only thing holding me back. I really really want to go, but here I am. Yeah. No, I, I hear you. Again, one eight fifty five four fifty no that's eight five five four five zero six six two four. The email live at asknoahshow.com. We go to the Linux Newswire. Here's Eric the IT guy. From the Linux Newswire Studio, this is the weekly roundup with Eric the IT guy. Hey Noah, happy to be with you again. And here are your Linux and open source headlines. The Linux kernel is in the headlines again this week with the announcement of Linux kernel 5.0 RC1. After almost 28 years of development, Linus Torvalds has decided to increment the version from 4.20 to 5.0. As usual, citing there is no big reason, just felt it was time. While this release does not bring with it any major overhauls or flagship features, it does see huge additions in mainline drivers, sunsetting of old drivers and code, as well as WireGuard and AMD FreeSync support. Kernel 5.0 is planned to be available for distributions in March of 2019. A new vulnerability in the Google Chromecast has surfaced in recent weeks called CastHack. For devices that reside on a UPnP, Universal Plug and Play enabled router, two ethical hackers were able to compromise thousands of devices to display messages on how to fix the bug and even provided a link to popular cybersecurity education YouTube channels. 
According to Google, this is not technically a flaw in the Chromecast itself. However, they do recommend disabling UPnP on network routers. Regardless, affected devices will leak Wi-Fi networks, both connected and remembered, what Bluetooth devices are connected, as well as exposing the ability for nefarious parties to factory reset or reboot the device, or connect it to alternative Wi-Fi networks and Bluetooth devices altogether. As of this time, specifics about this vulnerability or a timeline for fixing them have not been released. Project Soli has been given the green light this week by the FCC. Built by Google's Advanced Technology and Projects Group, Soli is a new radar-based, short-range motion sensor that provides virtual controls for mobile devices. The sensors detect motion, even through fabric, quote, providing for innovative device control features using touchless hand gesture technology. An example provided in routers is adjusting an invisible volume knob just by rubbing two fingers together. Google hopes that Soli will lead in a new era of mobile device interaction as well as advancements in technology usage by users with mobility and speech impairments. Finally this week, the Thunderbird project announces huge plans for 2019. Mozilla will be increasing the Thunderbird staff from 8 to as many as 14. Early milestones will be to overhaul the UI and improve support for Gmail. Late last year, community manager Ryan Sipes published a request for user feedback on the most recent release, Thunderbird 60. Recent personnel changes and increased community involvement have spurred interest in the native email client. The team hopes that UI improvements and paying off legacy debt will help make Thunderbird once again the cross-platform staple for open-source email management on the desktop. For LinuxNewsWire.com, I am Eric, the IT Guy. Thanks, Eric. Eric is with us every week, bringing us a weekly roundup of Linux news. Happy to have him, and we appreciate him for doing that. So uh, this week has been an interesting week. It for obviously Linux kernel 5.0 was out and I didn't see a lot in there that was really worth digging into. But when I started talking to Matt about self-hosting, then I started to look at what other projects were doing. And it turns out KDE is fighting this battle as well. So KDE, the desktop environment, uh, one of the many desktop environments for Linux, is looking at moving their hosting system over to GitLab. Now, currently it's over at Fabricator. And uh, I wanted to get Matt's input on this. Matt, do you have uh, any experience or, or, or a lot of experience with uh, with GitHub or GitLab or any of those sorts of things? Have you played with it at all? A little bit. I I, had, I don't have my own repo or anything like that. I mm -hmm. just mostly just go there and you know get other people's stuff. But um, yeah, on a, on, a, on a minute scale, I guess you could say. So one of the things that I thought might be kind of interesting to you or might be fun to chat about is the idea of using Git technology to do other things other than uh, programming code, right? Mm -hmm. So you can do it. You can use it for all sorts of things, like backing up configuration files, for example, and having those configuration files or configuration templates that you can have just at, at a moment's notice. Then you can grab them and say, "Well, I'm going to spit up." Uh, you know, I've I've gone through the trouble of setting up like Rivendell. You and I were talking about setting that up, and all of the little tweaks that you that you would do. We can take all of those configurations and put them up on on a GitLab instance, for example, and then we can just pull that information down the next time we ever need. Uh, we ever need to set that same thing up. And so there's, I think there's a lot of uses for Git-type technology. And the interesting thing is that this story forced me to dig a little bit into Fabricator. So Fabricator, for those of you who aren't familiar, is a software technology that is specifically designed to compete with GitHub or GitLab. It does a lot of the same things that Git does, but it has a much higher learning curve. And so the KDE team is saying, hey, we need to we need to jump off a of fabricator where we've been for a very long time, and we need to move on to something that has a lower learning curve like Git. The other advantage to Git, obviously, is that it has a 
it has the industry support of everybody knows how to use Git, right? So even Matt, who, you know, you've said, I don't have my own repo, I'm not doing this, but you've pulled information from Git. You figured out how to do that because there's a lot of guides and stuff for that on the internet. Yep, absolutely. And, you know, going back, I mean, when Git first came out, I'm sure there weren't a lot of people that were supporting it at the time. Right. You know, it's just a matter of, it's a word of mouth. And once you find something that actually works better than the other, and I'm not saying Git's bad at all, but if Fabricator can really come in and blow everyone out of the water, I mean, it's it's just a matter of time before everyone's using that. Absolutely. And I don't, the, the, so the issue that, because Fabricator has been around for a little bit. So I think the issue is that we, there is this, there is this paradigm that exists in the technology world. And I'm sure you've seen it as well. There is a lot of times the technically superior solution, and then there is the socially superior solution. And time and time again, what we find is that the socially superior solution wins. Mm -hmm. We saw that with beta versus VHS. You find that with uh, Blu-ray versus DVD HD. Like there's all these competing technologies. And oftentimes there's one that I can make a far better technical argument for. And yet the other one wins. And for no, no conceivably explainable reason other than it, people tend to, to, I guess, just dance around the lowest common denominator. Yeah. Well, I think the bigger, one of the things that I think kind of stands out with that is, and we talked a little bit about this, like OS 10, it's just candied. It's, it's a candy Linux version. You know, right. I mean, literally that's really what it is. Mm-hmm. And it's very, for the, for the average user, it's very easy to use. Now there is some Linux components that you can dig in and do, but you got a lot of turning on and turning off of things to make that work. You know, mm-hmm. they still leave the functionality there, but you got a lot of turning off and, and turning out of things to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's kind of the same way in this world right now we're in where, where people are looking for easy. They don't want to do the legwork for it. Right. You know, except for geeks that like doing that kind of stuff. There's just most people that just say, I just want it to look pretty and I just want to use it. Yes. You know, and which means, unfortunately, you take away a lot of the functionality. You know, you take away some of that, that really cool stuff that you can do. In essence, making it a little dumbed down, you know. Right. But it's it's easier for the most people to use. So. Yeah, and we've and we've, we've watched that happen, and it can be really frustrating for us that look at that look at some of this stuff from a thirty thousand foot view and go, well, "That's a bad idea. We shouldn't be doing that." And why are we? And like you say, it it comes down to people just want it to be pretty and work. The thing about Fabricator is, I, I dug into it a little bit. So Fabricator was originally designed actually by Facebook. And they designed it as an internal project to develop and continue the development of Facebook. Then they opened up as an open source project. So now everybody can use Fabricator. The thing is, it may have a higher learning curve. And I had that exact same reaction. But it may have a higher learning curve, but there are some really cool functionality. So Fabricator, for example, supports calendaring. It supports syntax review, global wikis, legal contract signing, internal chats, blogs, and funding. So... You you look at some of those some of that functionality and some of those features and say you know what would be really helpful as a company who who expends a lot of money trying to set up infrastructure to track some of these things when we have a project you know how great it would be to have the contracts that we have to have the client sign in the exact same place in the exact same dashboard if I can if I can use that term the exact same dashboard is the place that we publish the blogs to all of the customers for the upcoming things that we're doing and the same thing where that is tied into the funding and revenue generating models that all of that stuff can work together and be all in one place. That kind of centralization of, of effort and centralization of data and the ability to, to cross check that that eliminates so much of tying one API into another and having this read that database so that we can get this information over to there. I mean, 
just from the simple standpoint of our client database where we have a, a leads aggregator that basically says here's somebody that might want to service and having that tied into our ticket system so that when somebody says yes salespeople say yeah they want to go ahead and go ahead with that project now we have to get a technician to actually do the work just that disconnect alone is i mean represents thousands of dollars to us as a company to be able to make that work and so when i look at something like fabricator and i say listen all of the all of this functionality is just built into one place and then add to that it's open source so it means that if it doesn't quite fit a bill we can tweak it to to shoehorn it into fitting a bill i think that's i think that's a superior solution is it not well yeah i think it is a <laughs> very much a superior solution but again you have to be able to sell it to people who are uh, a little more techno you know, technologically yeah. advanced and are a little more willing to get their hands dirty. And I think that's probably where they start to lose a lot of people. The interesting thing about KDE's decision to do this is I don't entirely understand their, um, I don't entirely understand their rationale. So their argument on their page, which we'll have linked for you in the show notes, is that they're looking to host on GitLab because they have to have a self-hosted version. They cannot, their policy prohibits them from hosting their code uh, it, it, with a paid service, they, it has to be self-hosted. Yeah. The thing that is confusing to me about that is the very structure of Git itself, right? Or Fabricator, for that example. Everything is self-hosted. It's decentralized. That's the whole idea. And 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 Git servers are simply just fancy Git clients. And so everybody that works on the project has a copy of the code base. Now, you might have minor inconsistencies until they synced with each other, but the reality is that the vast majority of the code base exists in not just not just one or two places, but probably hundreds, if not thousands of locations. So I'm not really, I don't really understand where the advantage there is from going from something like Fabricator to GitLab. Both are self-hosted, both are decentralized, so it seems like that's neck and neck. Where there might be an advantage or where there might be some, 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 some ground to be covered is in the fact that Git is so much more widely accepted by the industry. Everybody knows how to use Git. Everybody, I mean, there's literally jokes. I don't know if you've seen it, but we used to have a sign and it said, uh, it said in case of fire, Git commit, Git push, <laughs> then exit building. Right. And the joke was, the joke was that, you know, we, you know, you had to get the code off of your local machine, get it up to the repo before you left so that, you know, you didn't lose your work. Uh, there, I mean, they literally make jokes and memes about because uh, I can buy that sign. Yeah. There's jokes and memes made about Git. Fabricator, I'll bet you there's not an insignificant portion of the listening audience that this is the first time they've heard of Fabricator. Because It's spelled with a PH, by the way, and we'll have a link for you in the chat room because we're going to dig into it a little bit more. And also one of those things that I want to start working with a little bit more at AltaSpeed because I think, like I say, I can see the advantages to this system. I can see how some of, uh, some, some of this functionality would be very beneficial. But I'm not, I'm not sure that I really think that that uh, the KDE project is going to make a lot of headway by moving off of uh, moving off of Fabricator. The other thing that I spoke to a couple of people that work on the KDE development team, and I asked them point blank, "Is are you happy about this? Are you not happy about this? Is this a good thing or is this is is this a bad thing?" And what I got from the vast majority of them were. Actually, we don't really have a problem with Fabricator. It's actually worked very, very well for us for a long time. And everybody in, in inside the project, yes, there's a little bit higher of a learning curve, but we've all figured it out. We all know how to do it. We're all able to get our work done. And frankly, we like all the functionality that exists in Fabricator and functionality that we simply don't have a way to replace if we move to GitLab. And, uh, and so I'm left with, I don't know that this is a great decision for them. I think that Fabricator is 
possibly the superior solution. So I'm interested in feedback. If you have feedback, if you'd let me know, write to live at asknoahshow.com and, uh, and let me know what your thoughts are on this. Is this a good idea? Is this a bad idea? Have you used... Uh, have you used Fabricator? And if so, have you used it side by side with GitLab and which is the, is the technically superior solution? And then do you think that this is, that they would gain a significant development base if they moved over to a more common platform? Again, you can join the program 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. You can join us in our interactive chat room at show.com as well as our interactive mumble room. All sorts of ways to add your voice to the conversation. So, Matt, one of the things that I, I wanted to talk with you a little bit about you have worked in radio for a long, long time. 21 years. Well, actually, hold on. What is it? 22 years now. So you have watched the technology in rate in the radio industry just like skyrocket. When I first started, um, which was back in 97, um, we were using Scott's 32, SS32, 32, 32 based, or it was 32 bit, excuse me. Uh, but it wasn't it wasn't window I, I think it was just run off a of dos i believe it ran right off a of dos okay it was a, a boot from dos um and literally when i had started it was right after the flood we had in grand forks in 97 and they had wiped everything out from all the carts so i never had the cart aspect you know the old radio carts that okay. uh, most people have um so i i was able to start with touchscreen right then and so i went from scott's 32 ss32 to um Geez, what else did I go to? Uh, I don't remember. There's a couple others in between there. But it was, you know, it was kind of a, uh, seeing it evolve, it's amazing how much it still looks the same mm-hmm. as it did back then. And still works the same. You know, you got your carts, you got your hotkeys, and that, that's really all you need for a radio station. So, You know, the but watching that grow to where we are today, even if you started, I mean, that's still very early versions of automation, even if you weren't manually loading carts. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's still very early automation. And so to watch that to where it's come today, where you have Internet syndication and you have the computers that are, are, are literally, I mean, this board has no audio in it at all. It's literally just a really, really expensive <laughs> USB controller, essentially, with a gigantic Ethernet cable hanging out the back of it. Um watching those kinds of technologies come into practice and kind of following has to be fantastic. It has to be really fascinating. It's, it is. It's really neat to see. I remember back in the day when we used to carry hockey games Mm -hmm. and we actually streamed it from our studio. Like everyone connected to our studio. Oh, wow. And that's how it was streamed out. And this was 10 years ago when the bandwidth probably wasn't there to support that. This is 20 that. years ago. Yeah. Yeah, this is 20 years ago. And they actually dialed into our studio, and that's how they streamed it. Uh, we had a website, but it, it you know kind of jumped us back to the studio. Anyways, I mean, to where we're at now, where you can stream out to 100,000 people, no right. problem. But yeah. obviously, you're not doing it from in-house. It's being one, one yeah. stream sent out. You've got a CDN out. in between yeah. now. So, yeah, seeing where we've gone, where we've come from, and where we're at now is is, is it's amazing. Like you were saying, one cord coming out of your, your mixer board. Right. You know, uh, the old days, you had 15, 20, 30 cables coming out. Yeah, I tell you what, I, I've worked enough. I was so happy when I, I, when, I, when, I got, when I started playing into the radio industry. So, by comparison, I've been involved with radio at all of two years. And uh, what's been interesting to me when I got in there and they said, yeah, I, you know, we used to use 66 blocks. And I'm like, I've spent enough time punching wires down on 66 blocks. I could do away with that for the rest of my life and I'd be perfectly <laughs> happy, right? Like, you know, there's there's something to be said about the simplicity of just banging into the block and being able to actually look at a physical connection and saying, well, uh, this is not getting to here and here's why I'm being able to actually see it. Yeah. There is an advantage there. Uh, but at the same time, like, I don't, I don't, I'm not, I'm not. I'm not upset that I missed that that aspect of, of radio. But what's interesting is 
talking to you and watching somebody who is a veteran of the industry and then looking at it and you're saying, I'm looking at where podcast is going. You're bringing all of the advantages that and all of the practices that radio is doing right over to the podcasting side. And yet you're not married to old technology just because that's the way we've always done it. No. And that's, that's not me. I mean, I am not one person to hold on to anything for very long. I, I move on. I move on with technology. Um, got to have the newest, got to have the latest and the greatest. That's just part of who I am. I like to spend my money on that stuff. So it's sitting and, 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 you know, dwelling on old analog equipment when you know that you can have something smaller, cleaner, right. lighter, much easier to work with. I mean, it, it doesn't make sense. Right. You know, it's, and it's great to learn on that stuff. You know, if you're podcasting, you pick up some old equipment mm-hmm. and learn the analog side of it and yeah. then move into digital. That's that's kind of actually where I'm going with, with where we're at. But uh, I think that's, you definitely want to learn something there. But at the same time, um, there's really, you're not gaining anything by sticking with the old stuff in this my, one of the guys I used to work with, we, him and I always used to joke that the people that are starting in today, and this is a conversation we had even two, three years ago, people that are starting, they'll never understand some of the heartache that you had to deal with 10 or 15 years ago. Because today, you can buy uh, you know, a really high-quality USB microphone and plug it in, and you'll sound just as good as the, as the, as the $20,000 studio sure. guys. You know, and that just wasn't a possibility 10 years ago or even five years ago. I mean, a lot of this technology has just come out very recently and allows just anybody to be able to create content. Yeah, and you know, if, if that's really the big thing. Someone's not going to listen to your podcast or your radio show or your TV show just because you look or sound great. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe some lookers, but uh, for the most part, it's you got to have the content. You really, really have to have a good set of content to be able to put out to people because otherwise it's going to flip off. I mean, how many podcasts are out there right now? Yeah. Hundreds of thousands. Oh, the noise floor is, you know? is just ridiculous. So, I mean, you are competing against a lot of people. So, you know, you really have to... Up your headstrong. Yeah, you really have to show up. So, and that's where, I think that's where you and I really agree because one of the things that has been frustrating for me working with other people in the podcast industry is they're they try to reinvent the wheel and they don't want to they don't want to take the hard-learned lessons and the well-tried and true lessons of broadcast technology and implement and you and i were talking just on the just on the example of mixed minus buses right yeah just a very simple thing and not to get drugged down into the weeds with with broadcast technology but this idea that you know people in the podcast industry are still struggling with this and the broadcast industry figured that out 30 years ago and they have been designing equipment to deal with this for 30 years and nobody on the podcast not nobody but very few people on the podcast side are taking advantage of that they're still going through and and trying to use aux buses and, and all sorts of things right. to try to get and then they struggle because they have echo and feedback and all those kinds of things well yeah and they're you know that's one side of it too i mean if you're going to take calls and you're going to have other people on your show and that kind of stuff you do have to have the right equipment for it you, you can't just go out to well not radio shack anymore but you know mm-hmm. a, a store like that and just buy a mackie board that's got four inputs on it and and doesn't have any way of doing mix minus that's just not going to work for you right you know so you really have to tailor it to what you're going to do Yep. If you're just going to talk and you're not going to interview anybody, no, it, or doesn't matter, right? it doesn't matter. But you really kind of have to tailor your equipment to what you're going to be doing. Yeah. And it's, so it's been it's been it's been really, uh, I guess, refreshing to be able to work with somebody who who understands some of that stuff. And and then but is, again, not married to just because we've always done it on an analog transmitter. Then if it's not going out over an FM terrestrial station, then it's, quote unquote, not good enough. Um, so so that has been uh, has been really refreshing. Well, and, uh, and prefacing that really quick, if mm-hmm. we were 10 or 15 years ago that people didn't have cell phones that could stream everything. Sure. I would say, yeah, we should probably stick with the AM FM right now. <laughs> oh, <laughs> but absolutely. right now we're at a point where 
people have AMFM on their phone, yes. let alone streaming capability, you know, where your, your podcast is maybe 50 megabytes. I mean, right. on your, your data plan, that's nothing. And, you know, the other thing is you look to, you look to skating where the puck is going to be, if I can, if I can use a hockey reference. The, the, the reality is that in, in, you'll go around and look at the studio that you and I work in, right? There are no analog boards. There are no cart machines. There are no analog switches. Everything is being done with IP technology. Everything is being done uh, digitally. And so there is no doubt in my mind that sometime in the very near future, the final, the only thing that continues to be analog is that final hop from the transmitter over to the consumer side equipment. And now you're looking at Tesla. They don't even have an FM radio inside the car. Yeah. And you look at some of the, the newer vehicles there. All of them are coming built in, most of them anyway, with uh, 4G LTE streaming. Yeah, and that's all the Chevys are doing that. A lot of Chevy. My my truck's got that, and I, I don't even use it. I don't pay for it or anything, but right. it's there. You so, know? The, but so the technology is there. So, how long before finally somebody goes, "Hey, you know what? Can you stream? Can you do like Spotify and Pandora and stuff in there?" I can if I had paid for the data plan. Okay, but you know, I can. Uh, I can just sling it from my phone at where it's at. Right. So. But it, we're getting to see because the thing is, the. I think radio is going to reign supreme while radios are still on the dashboard because that's how people like to get content, frankly, because people are lazy. and they're t Most people are too lazy to tether their phone or to start a streaming service on their phone and then, you know, Bluetooth up to their car and all of that. But I think once that start, stuff starts being integrated into the car itself, into the dashboard head unit of the car, then I think the delivery is easily going to be over IP. It just makes sense because yeah. we're, we're continuing to build IP infrastructure and we're continuing to wind down analog transmission infrastructure. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. I, I really do. And again, it's not a biased thing because we're on a podcast. Right. I really believe that that... And you know, the, the radio stations, they may end up... Well, I guess they kind of are with HD radio. I mean, that's all digital base. You right. know, that's that's kind of where it's going. Yep. Um, so it's just a matter of time before everything just goes IP. I, I agree 100%. So we'll have to watch that. But like I say, that's what's exciting uh, uh, about working with you is because you 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 have both sides of that. And uh, and now I have both sides of that. And so to be able to, to work with somebody else that's kind of on the same page has been really nice. 855-450-NOAA. That's 855-450-6624. Marcus, Texas, you're on the Ask Noah Show. What's up? Hi. I live in a very rural area where I get my internet via a cell phone or a cell phone hotspot. And I'm a Linux newbie, and I wanted to know the best way of setting that up. Setting uh, okay, so you want to know the best way of setting up your laptop to connect to a a hotspot? No, um, I want to set up a Linux uh, uh, server to route my internet through to my my actual wow. router because the hotspot is really dumb. It has a maximum of nine clients. Period. I see. So if it gets like eight or nine people, it literally just completely locks, dumps everybody off the internet for about three to four minutes. So you want to you basically reconnect with a. You want your Linux box to handle all the routing and just let the hotspot do the internet side. Right. Let me ask you something. Are you absolutely married to doing this through Linux? Like, I'm the first guy that if I can do something <laughs> using a Linux box, I'd be willing to do it. But there are far easier ways to do that than than using a computer. I just want it to work. Uh, I, I, in my in my future self, uh, where I actually am a master of, of networking or whatever... I would like to have redundancy, but where I can plug in my cell phone, and that's why I thought the Linux might be a better idea, but I wanted to ask your opinion of the best way of using Sprint, and that's kind of the next rub, is I use Sprint. Sure. And, well, they don't appreciate other carriers. 
<laughs> that's fair. That's fair enough. Yeah. Matt, Matt, what's your thought? How would you go about setting that up? I'll be honest with you. I, I wouldn't go straight Linux. I mean, that's that's a lot of work. And if you want to do it, fantastic. I mean, more power to you. But you are, that's a lot of work. Um, I heard someone, or I just read somebody say vomit, but maybe use a Pi. I've looked into Raspberry Pis. PFSense will not run on a Pi. You'd be running a straight Linux, and you'd have to have a couple inputs for that. I don't know how well a, a Pi would handle um, a lot of clients. You know, you maybe, maybe you're at that 10, 15, 20. I don't even know. Um, but here's another question I got for you is what are you running? from Sprint is it wireless or do you have a do you have a hard line it's a wireless uh, it's just you know 4G it's a 4G hotspot and yeah. I use my cell phone sometimes and sometimes it's 4G hotspot so first off can you even shut off the, the, the routing function on that that's the first question and two how are you going to get wire you're going to lose some bandwidth going from the hotspot to another router and then out to your devices if you're you see what I'm saying? My my plan is to use use the computer as a pass through, and then to have it just point the internet from from my existing bigger, more more powerful router through to there, and eventually just upgrade that. The bandwidth is not necessarily. I'd rather have a little bit of reliability than like 4G speech. I'm fine with 3G. It it is so long as it's it is technically what you're suggesting is technically possible. You can do it with with some firewall rules in your Linux box. In fact, if you go back and listen to our episode, the truth about Southeast Linux fix, they actually ran an entire uh, conference off of a cell phone hotspot. I do want to make a stop in our interactive mumble room. Nunix has something to add to the conversation. Yeah, I was thinking that this would be a perfect time to look into OpenSense. Uh, it's a security enhanced fork of uh, PFSense, and um, if you you can run it in a VM if you want. Um, I wouldn't recommend mm -hmm. virtualizing any network equipment, but uh, you can get some pretty inexpensive devices that will run it from PC engines. Um, and then you have multiple NICs, and that will give you your, uh, your foothold into going into network engineering if that's what you really feel like doing as well. And Matt, uh, and uh, Warhead SE, you had, a th you had a thought about Shorewell? Right. If you wanted to stick with something you're somewhat familiar with, the Linux side, you do have a couple of options that are available on the Linux side, such as Shorewall. So there is that. There is PFSense. There is OpenSense. He's got multiple choices. I think my only concern is the wireless aspect. I mean, I, I, I don't know if you'd have to go with a WISP mode almost. You know, like there's some routers. When I go to a hotel, I go to WISP mode. Sure. I don't know if that... I, well, I feel like if you, so if you brought the internet in through, and this is what I, where I was going to, to suggest, is if you brought the internet directly into a router like a Microtech, like you plugged a USB cable in, so you're you're coming off of your 4G or LTE tower and bringing that in as a hardware connection into your router, as an, essentially using the phone as an LTE modem, now, every, now the rest of the network becomes very transparent as to how you would treat any WAN connection. Yeah. Um, now, as Matt correctly pointed out, you'd have to have some way to get that phone to go into some sort of bridge mode because otherwise you're going to double NAT yourself. And that wouldn't necessarily bother like browsing internet traffic, but it's going to break Skype calls. It's going to break any sort of online gaming um, because it's going to break your UPnP uh, functionality. Port forwarding would be a nightmare. It would become impossible because yeah. you can't. You uh, well, not impossible, but it you would, would be have. A nightmare. Yeah, you'd have to. Essentially, what you'd have to do is you'd have to assign. You need to have nine max if it's only going to give you nine uh, internal IPs off of that uh, off of that WiMAX connection for whatever the Sprint calls their uh, LTE now. Have Have you looked into? I'm sorry. I have a program that I have a program that actually lets me plug my phone in called Easy Tether 
Um, it works on Linux. It's kind of like PDA net for Linux and it has a windows client too, but whatever. Um, and I actually have the USB ability to plug it into my Linux box already directly from my, from my hotspot. Okay. So my phone okay. is easy tethered, and the hotspot is just a USB modem. Well, I mean, so here, let, let, let's just get this out of the way. If you if you go into network connections on on Linux, either on GNOME or on KDE, under your under whatever internet connection you want to share, under the IPv4 connection method, instead of choosing automatic to get a DHCP address, you can choose share to other computers. I mean, so if that's the answer you're looking for, if you're just looking for the, the the simple and straightforward answer of how do I share an internet connection through my laptop, that's, I mean, there is a way to do that. It's it ha- it's riddled with all sorts of issues, as we've discussed, but it's possible. And the that's other question why. is, are you, using a, are you actually using a GUI or are you doing this all CLI? Um, I, I'm more familiar with GUIs because I'm, I'm, like I said, a Linux newbie, but I am more than willing to learn. I, I used to code. Uh, but now I'm 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 literally teaching people how to ride a horse. Okay. Uh, but regardless, um, so I'm not a complete adverse to the command line. I'm just not used to the Linux commands themselves. Sure. And then you can I mean you can find those anywhere on the internet. So man, I'd like to see your uh, setup. I don't know if you can send it to Noah when you do get it set up. I'd love to see how you did that. Yeah. If you do. Yeah. If you if you if, when you get it set up, either give us a call back or just shoot us an email at live at asknoahshow.com. We'd love to feature it. No problem. All right, man. Thanks Good for luck. The, thanks for the call. 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. Just a couple of minutes as we wrap up the program for this week. Matt, uh, thanks so much for uh, for taking the time to be here. I really yeah. appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. I was telling Noah off the air. I said, man, this is, this is the first time in radio I've actually talked like this and enjoyed it. Because 